This is Conversations. I'm Enrique Cerna. Coming up. I'm a novelist and I'm an investigative journalist. So how do I explain what I see as the greatest injustice that I personally have witnessed? New York Times bestselling author Suki Kim. It ended up being like 10-year project. The fascinating story of her undercover journey into North Korea, where she taught English to the sons of North Korea's elite. She details her journey into this closed society in her memoir, Without You, There Is No Us. If the world knows nothing of what's going on inside, it's because it's very good at hiding it. Suki Kim was a featured author this year at Seattle University's Search for Meaning Book Festival. She was one of more than 50 authors representing the who's who of the literary and scholarly worlds. A full house was on hand at Pickett Auditorium to greet the author, who is no stranger to Seattle and its liquid sunshine. In her opening remarks, she talked about her own search for meaning in writing this book. I haven't been in Seattle since 1999, I believe, when I came here um, to write, actually. I was invited to a, a writer's residency as a young writer. It's really, really nice to be back. It's still rainy, as I remember. <laughs> um, it was very touching. I was just realizing when you all raise your hand saying that um, you've been to this festival before and you've returned. And, um, you know, why we're here is because we are thinking about and questioning, searching for meaning in life. And I was thinking, um, as I was just sitting there, like this sort of happiness in my heart, thinking, I'm so grateful I get to do that and also be around people who care about that. Because in so many societies in the world, um, that is not allowed. And um, ultimately, because I kept questioning when I heard about this phrase, search for meaning, and it's really why I went to North Korea. Because people, you know, I, since the book came out, I spent 2015 pretty much traveling around the world. And no matter where you go, uh, South Korea, <laughs> uh, which of, of course is hugely interested in, in, in this issue, uh, America starting from here, to Poland, who has their own history of, of what you know, the, this kind of regime might mean in their history, political past, um, to Spain, to Hungary, to, I mean, Australia, and they always ask you, ask me in interviews, why did you go? And, you know, it's really, I often got stuck answering that question because there were so many, sure, reasons, personal reasons, uh, professional reasons, um, but ultimately it was a search for meaning. Um, and the world that I found, I grew up uh, briefly, you know, I was born in South Korea, and um, I grew up in, you know, I immigrated to America. I did grow up in a family that's been separated by the Korean War, so it's an issue that's very personal to me. But, you know, ultimately, I think that um, I did always question what uh, a war does to an individual. I did grow up with uh, watching my grandmother who lost her son uh, during the war, not lost him, separated. So what does it mean, separation? And then, of course, I ended up immigrating at a very sensitive age of 13, and I always questioned uh, what does it mean to be separated from home? And when that separation actually is an artificial separation, that takes on another meaning. So what does that do to uh, uh, a person, an individual? So I think that uh, search for all of that did 
you know, bring me to North Korea in 2002 for the first time. And what I found there was devastating. But devastating in a way I couldn't possibly explain in a single article. Uh, I went there five times repeatedly. Uh, it, was, it was just larger than anything that I could possibly capture. <laughs> so what that meant was it began this search, you know, literally investigative journalism. Uh, I tried to understand it in every possible way. I'm a novelist and I'm an investigative journalist, so how do I explain what I see as the greatest injustice that I personally have uh, witnessed and, and realized, but how do I put that in writing, which is what I know how to do, is to write. But in order to do that, I, I needed to uh, go undercover. You know, quickly, I, I, it was very clear. I went there um, also to cover for Harper's uh, when um, the New York Philharmonic went into Pyongyang. I did that. But, you know, that wasn't going to tell me those few days in North Korea with the world's most fancy orchestra, uh, with Pyongyang all lit up, the capital of North Korea all lit up for your eyes only, the journalists. You know, that picture was not going to uh, deliver really what is going on in there. So I, uh, I kept trying to find different ways. And, um, you know, I even interviewed defectors all around the region. About 100 of them traveled to Mongolia, uh, Thailand, Laos, China, and, and interviewed all the defectors. But that's, you know, still not, wasn't giving me enough picture because defectors from North Korea um, are the bottom rung of the society. So you're only getting one snapshot. And they fled also, so you're getting the story once they fled. So then, um, you know, and I did that, you know, I basically, as a writer, you know, I, I got Guggenheim Fellowship or Soros Fellowship and Fulbright in order to uh, somehow f find out, you know, spend months and months and months. It ended up being like 10-year project to get it from all angle. And, and, you know, as a, as a young writer, stri you know, striving writer, how do I research this? <laughs> the search went on and on and on. And I did uh, realize the only way I can get to it is to live there um, for a length of time, which is what I ended up doing. And as I uh, finally did end up living there and, and getting to know the people, Ultimately, it's the psychology um, of the people. And that, uh, you know, it broke my heart, but it also, I guess, in some way gave me hope in a, in a weird, uh, you know, hope is a too much of a big word, but I guess some sort of a, a opening that human soul is resilient. So then, uh, you know, we need to understand this topic in a, in a, on a, like on a humanity level. So without that, in a way, without that, there is no understanding. Without that, there is no us, which ended up being a title of the book. So I think that search for, you know, North Korea has so many different facets, which is like a nuclear threat, right? And there's um, human rights violation. UN calls it the worst in the contemporary world. Um, it's a 70-year regime. People compare it to China or West Germany, Cuba. I mean, I don't really, you know, I don't really see where the comparison really is. Vague comparison, but we've never seen anything like it. 
Uh, the closest impression, someone actually asked me recently in an interview, now that it's been about a year since the hardback came out and I've traveled, what have you learned? I mean, with North Korea, nothing changed. But what have I learned? You know, now I get it why uh, the world sat back when people were being sent to gas chambers during the Nazi era. And I think growing up, I never understood that one. You know, I get it, like, you know, that, that horrible regime does horrible things to citizens, but I never could understand why the world sat back. Not like, you know, 1,000 people are going, or even 10,000, millions are being sent to gas chambers. So who are, what were the people doing that time who are living there, you know? And like, where were the writers? Where were the investigative journalists of the era? And, and, um, and that question, I feel like now I think I know why. Uh, North Korea is one place where journalism has failed, but I think we also have failed. There's a sense that I think that we're complicit. And, and I think, you know, some of the backlash I got, I got a lot of backlash with the book. You know, people are also very furious I wrote the book. And, and would always say, you know, those, those, the backlashes would focus on it's actually not that bad in North Korea. And I don't really know where that one can glean that, just because Dennis Rodnam goes to North Korea with, you know, a TV crew and show a country that might be doing a barbecue, you know, picnic for, for the camera's eyes. You know, that, I think that the search for the most brutal regime in the world has to go deeper than that. Because, and, 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 I think that why undercover journalism um, is the only way, in a way, was to cover that because that's the only way. You know, if you're going to go interview <laughs> dictators or mafia, I mean, you can't, you know, the three-day CNN, you know, look behind North Korea. I mean, that's just going in with a camera and the regime says, interview this person, and you interview them and you come out. And I, I think that, yes, as a, as a media, you end up, end up doing um, you know, what you end up writing, which is actually really important, could be, you know, I guess sometimes act as almost like a press release for the subject. You, we see that a lot, like in a movie, you know, when, when people write about movie stars and stuff. But you can't really do that when the subject is the world's most brutal regime in the world. So I think that... Um, it's, it's, you know, I think that I, I have realized, which I did through those decade of search for this topic, uh, what's at the core of North Korea, which I will get to uh, when I sit down with Enrique and discuss some of that, but why, uh, you know, the search was so long and why it's such a difficult one, why it's the country that the world knows nothing. If the world knows nothing of what's going on inside, it's because it's very good at hiding it. Suki Kim, the author of Without You, There Is No Us, her memoir about her undercover experience teaching English to the sons of North Korea's elite. After her presentation, Suki sat down with me before the audience to talk more about her investigative journey into North Korea. Her undercover opportunity happened when she was hired by an international evangelical organization that brought her into the country as an English teacher. As I was searching for any other path of going, I heard about, by chance, this bizarre setup of a school being built there, an organization, international organization of evangelical Christians. So I applied for a job with the uh, 
organization to go teach. It took years of, you know, not, that, that part is not in the book because you can't, you know, talk about like back and forth, back and forth email with them. But was your intent to try to become a teacher with them so you could get in there oh, to absolutely. spend the time? Oh, absolutely. It was always about writing the book. I already had a contract. Um, I, I, I published a novel back in 2003. Um, so the editor of that, I already talked to him saying, I, I need to tell this story, but I don't know how because I don't know how I'm going to go live there. So already, you know, there was this, this book, and I just needed to live there. So when I was pursuing the organization, I was trying to get in. I mean, simple as that. And I knew that teachers were being let in. And those teachers, but it, you know, I actually didn't know when I, they were actually very vague at the time. So when I got contacted them, the organization, can I go teach there? I didn't know it was a heavy evangelical group at all. They were very uh, shady about that. So I was just, I was applying. <laughs> so, you know, and they kind of just assumed I was one of them. Uh, because why else would you go to North Korea to teach? You know, like it's not, I wasn't paid. <laughs> the fact you're not really, like you're not paid to go, the job comes with no pay and, <laughs> and a horrible situation in a gulag nation. Like why would you go there unless you have a reason to? So I think they just assumed that I was trying to spread the, the gospel, basically. Those shady evangelicals, I tell you. <laughs> yeah. Well, good things that they existed so you could do this. So, so tell me about the day you arrived. And as you are going into this adventure journey. Um, you know, when I, I actually saw the school before in 2000, I believe I went in 2011, but I, it was 2010, I think I actually saw kind of a school mostly built. It took about 10 years for the school to be built. A Fisher sum that they say is $35 million, and I'm sure more money was exchanged. I didn't want to focus on investigating that group and how much of that money that they raised around the world. I mean, the people who give money to fund this school mostly came from actually individual donations. Um, it's just out of actually goodwill of good Christians around the world. A lot of them actually Korean who really whose soul belongs in North. You know, they miss their homeland. So I actually met this lady who was um, from New Zealand, who Korean American, and they were like, you know, dry clean. They they ran dry cleaning in in New Zealand, and 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 the money life saving. She said her husband is Korean, you know, they're all Korean, New Zealander, and she said her husband, his, the only wish he had was to see, the, see home again. So the life-saving money of her retirement fund, she poured into the school. So, I mean, it was just, you know, heart-wrenching in a way. Why? So there were so many people like, like that who were giving money to the school. So the, some of the funders, there was a trip in 2010, so I went for three days to look at it. And I did at the time, because I knew I was going to go in there. I didn't know for how long. Could be a year. Originally, I applied to go live there for two years. And I thought, oh my god, this is going to be my prison. <laughs> I mean, because I hadn't seen the students yet. And I think that is actually important, like even the first day. You know, because you know, I'd been to Pyongyang before. It's a bleak city. Um, but I didn't know that I was never going to be allowed of the campus either. So all of those things I learned later. Uh, but you know, going into the campus, I didn't see the students yet. It's just basically this bleak. You saw the picture of this this campus. So what is this? What's going to happen here? I really did think, am I going to die here? You know, it's a very big chance actually. And so there was that dread and fear. 
a lot of which actually the only light of that the escape, mental escape, was when I met the young man that I ended up really falling in love with. Let's talk about that. <laughs> Just you and me, right here. <laughs> yeah. So you meet the young men. Tell me about them, who they are, where they came from. You know, I mean, so I, I think that, you know, one thing probably that was important in writing this, and I always intended to, because my background is a literary novelist, you know, I wasn't interested in uh, any judgment, really. Uh, who they are, sure, they're North Koreans, so who are they going to be? And um, I met them. My first day, I remember asking them, is there anything you want to ask? And um, so I, I ended up, there were 270 of them, all aged between 19 and 20, you know, two or so at the time. And I, um, you know, they, and I was directly in charge of 50 of them. And when I first uh, met them, they wanted to know things like, what's your favorite color? And, and first day, you know, it seems very like, did you see the flowers in campus? We planted them. So I mean, these were like kind of children questions, you know, because I asked something similar. I taught in Chicago at this university, and I remember at the first, first day of the class, I asked something similar, and they asked things like, so did our college invite you to teach here, or did you have to apply for this job? You know? <laughs> and that's like, I mean, I don't mean to be like harsh on American students, but they wanted to know if I was worth their tuition money. <laughs> and, and I mean, that was the why, why, why I also just that I thought they would ask me who's your favorite author or something. I mean, they were not interested. These students actually wanted to know like my favorite color, and all of I think that was explained to me more and more as I lived with them. Because if you are really infantilized by your controlling regime, you're going to be younger. I mean, there were really some people who you know people who love the book. One question often they have is they seem so much younger than 19. I mean, sometimes I felt also when you have nothing. You know, there's this, this was a Pyongyang University of Science and Technology. A lot of the computer majors, they didn't even know what the internet was at the time. So if information is shielded from you to this degree and you have to always ask for permission to go anywhere, do anything, then you are going to be psychologically younger. What were these young men like? You know, I mean, I think that's maybe the title of this festival goes really in... Um, it's, it's very suitable for what they were like because we had nothing. You know, students were never allowed out. Uh, every movement is watched. Their mind is on campus living with you. Uh, rooms are bugged. Uh, you know, they didn't have anything. Their schedules are mapped out. And um, teachers were only allowed out to, on weekends in a group with minders to look at great leader buildings. So you really have, I mean, it doesn't matter where you go, though. I mean, it would be mountains. Obviously, you saw it. It's a great leader mountain. So it doesn't matter where you go. It's going to be about great leader. So uh, I went to an apple, uh, like an apple farm. But you get, like, the entire, it's just a farm. And then they just hold up an apple and give you, like, hours and hours of lecture about how great leader is also versed in apple growing, for example. <laughs> so it's, it's sort of, you, it's very one track, nothing else. And you know, because you have nothing, the students literally were not allowed out, no internet, nothing. You have on each other. And when that happens, I think all the complicated human emotions do come out. Me trying to understand them, they really had nothing else. So I think that love was the only way that you would really, in a way, 
you know, because no matter how much, and there were a lot of things that were really, they were lovely and innocent and funny, because also funny was another thing, because they didn't have much, they, they're not going to be on their cell phone surfing while you're talking to them. <laughs> <laughs> and so in some way, they, also they're very obedient because they've been abused by their system. They have to be obey. So in some way, some people said to me, these are like your dream students. And it's like, <laughs> you know, but I mean, because they're going to obey you. How many 19-year-olds are going to be so happy to obey you? So, I mean, it's an in, but that's a very disturbing aspect. But I think that trying to, and they lied all the time. That's another thing. But that's also, I think, I think I had a line in the book that my feelings lying. Why did they have to lie? Because if you tell the truth, you end up in a gulag. I mean, it's, it's really a society built, and all you're learning is basically the great leader is the most worshipped hero in the entire world. I mean, it's just all, all made up. So if you actually grew up in a system of lies where truth is not valued whatsoever, then they're going to lie. So I think that, I think that it was really difficult. You know, I think the psychology of that took me a while to understand it. So I think I did feel this great sense of disappointment and at some point, point repulsed by lies. But then you become, you, and then the next phase comes where it was empathy. When I began to try to really understand it from their point of view, and then feeling as time and time grew, I spent so much time with them. We ate three meals a day with them. You know, they're like, they've got nothing else but me, really, for months and months and months. So I think that it was this incredible sense of, I felt so much heartache at this world that they live in. Did you feel like a mother to them? Yeah, I did. Because, and, and those were possibly the saddest moments because you know, I think this, I needed to understand the complexity. Human beings are complex. So I think that living there, uh, you know, there were light moments, you know, because these are boys. They're 19, and I'm like a female teacher, so they'll make all these jokes, <laughs> you know, a lot of jokes that were, like, funny. Things more and more kind of, you know, you had these private jokes as will be at meals, and they'll talk about like how handsome they are, all the women are in love with them, and, and, but in fact, they can't even go out of the campus, you know, like, <laughs> and so I would be laughing with them, and I would be laughing, and then I would see, because all the North Koreans have to wear the great leader badges under, um, you know, at all time, every citizen. So I would be laughing as forgetting for a moment that I, I am in Pyongyang with the sons of the leaders. And I think that I would see the, those badges and my heart would sink. Because I think, oh yeah, I forget the world that they are going to have to inherit and lead. And, and, and this lovely young man. And they were just like normal kids on some level. Let's talk about the lying. Because that's something that, you know, it's a nation built on lies. Uh, these are young men, you said, that were very good at lying. What kind of lying are we talking about? Lies came, you know, I, I think I quickly learned that they came in different levels. Sometimes they were just like children lie. So they'll say, like, oh, my homework's in my notebook. And then I'll be like, open it then. And they're like, oh, it's my book bag. And then open it. <laughs> and, and I left it in my room. So I mean, like, but why would a 19-year-old college kid lie like that? You know, so and I think that that's, that I didn't really understand. So it started from there. And then... It would be like lies of, I know that they were old. They had a lot of duties, like great leader duties. They had to clean, you know, the great leader tower that I showed you, the immortal tower. They had to like clean the bottom of that with water 
or they would always have to pluck all the grass and stuff, like kneeling. Um, and I think that's, you know, it's like keeping people busy is another thing North Korean regime does. Like, so all the citizens have so many duties like that. So when you walk in Pyongyang, you'll see people all like pulling grass. Uh, it's like they're not using lawnmower. I mean, some of that is because, you know, electricity issue, but also lack of stuff. But also, I think that you just keep people occupied with this menial task. So kids had so many, they had to count the spoons in the cafeteria. So it's because they, it's like you have no free time. And you'll, you'll hear that. And, you know, when I used to interview defectors, they would say that. They, they would be like, you just have no time. You know, like you're asking them questions like, I remember Philharmonic time. You know, I went there to Pyongyang as like 100 media. They're all asking, you know, CNN asking, so what do you think about New York Philharmonic coming to Pyongyang? I mean, it's like going into Gulag and asking, so what do you think about the orchestra? I mean, it's not a, it's not a society where you have a lot of free time. So I think because they were uh, busy all the time, what was the question? Well, <laughs> I gotta remember. Uh, <laughs> what, what were they lying about and, and oh. the lying? So they would say things like, I saw them all doing these garden duties, which is to do with all this, you know, plucking, pulling grass out of stuff. And they'll say, oh, I slept so well, and I'm so well rested. And it's like, they kind of have to say that clearly, you know, because it's all being reported. It's like a soldier system. So there was like a monitor, class monitor, secretary. Their real duties were actually reporting on each other. All the students worked in a pair system. So they were uh, always a body system. So they went, they went nowhere alone. Even the officer were the pair, the body had to come see me together. So if they're reporting on each other, they can't really, they have to say it. So when they would say things like that, I, I, I was arrested. I knew that it was to protect their system. Or sometimes they just regurgitate lies. You know, they'll be like, oh, kimchi is the most popular food in the world. You know, kimchi is a Korean pickle. Is that they said, we were, you know, we know that it was the lunch uh, Olympic official food. And I'm like, you know, kimchi, the Korean spicy pickle is really good for those of you who haven't tasted it, but it's not the most popular food in America. <laughs> 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 I, mean, that, I mean, that's not lying. It's just like regurgitating lie. Or they would tell me their hackers get re rewarded in their nation, for example. So if hackers are being rewarded in the country, then lies are celebrated. So I think, I think this kind of, I think the multiple levels of lies, I realized then they sometimes didn't know the difference between truth and lies. So I think that explains sometimes when they did this kind of nonsense lie. They protected each other a lot. I wouldn't see a student who was supposed to be there and they'll say, oh, he's getting a haircut. No, 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 he's sick. But they'll excise so quickly. You know, there's no thinking. So I think that that whole thing of truth and lies become very blurry when you've been encouraged to lie all the time, which is a very horrible thing. More and more I love them. That, you know, I think I describe it as like a mother being afraid of your own son on some level. Because it's just really horrible, it's sick, ugly feeling. And so there is that level, but also just feeling like, what is this world that they are living in where these beautiful young men have to lie to survive? So I think that's the lies were really a, another complicated level of trying to understand their world. Uh, we have a couple of microphones here, so if uh, you have a question you'd like to ask, please come up, and I will work you into the conversation here. Um, before I get to you, your own fear about what you were doing, 
you know. And how, and how were you hiding what you were seeing, I guess? I mean, you had to be able to keep track of it as a journalist, write it down, whatever. So how I wrote the book, I mean, I went in uh, with, you know, smallest USB sticks so that I could keep on my body, um, as well as like a SIM card on camera. Um, so I had multiples of them. I wrote like at dawn, usually like 4 a.m. until 6 a.m. Classes start, uh, you know, preparation starts. And then in the evening, and I erased them all from the laptop because I knew that they go into your stuff. Um, so every single time I erased everything and then kept them on the USB stick that I kept in my body. I mean, and, and in the document, I, I had it document within a document, so it, was, it looked like a class notes. And then the real book began, like, you know, page 89 or something. So, uh, so I mean, it was because I'd been there where I know for a fact. I mean, miners lived in the same building in the ground floor of the teacher dormitories, and their job was to watch me. And they knew, like, every detail about me because students weren't even allowed the internet or didn't even know what it was. Teachers had a monitored internet connection, which meant somebody's watching what you're doing at all time. And it did actually also bring up lots of questions about communication. Uh, you know, what it means. Letters lose meaning if letters are all being read out by other people, right? So, uh, you know, because they, they looked at my email, I could only email, like, to, you know, say I'm safe to family, like, once a week kind of email. So, but they knew from even those what time I woke up exactly that yesterday. They'll be like, the minder will be like, oh, comrade Suki, you know, you um, woke up yesterday later than user at 5 p.m. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a threat. They tell you, I'm watching you, you know? So you had to really, really hide those things because, you know, if they saw, if they found my book, I mean, clearly, you know, what would be the repercussion? I mean, because that's their, it's what they would, they would call it a spying act, clearly. So, I mean, that punishment for that would be, I guess, a gulag sentence. And there'd probably be some negotiating to try to get you out of the country. So, uh, question right here. What do you think could happen to North Korea if there was a revolt or if their regime collapsed? What do you, I, I worry that these people have been indoctrinated for so long that they wouldn't, they wouldn't know how to be anything else. I mean, that's a complicated question because, obviously, uh, it is so tightly controlled I think the level of control uh, is beyond. I mean, just, I mean, just a common sense, you know? Like NASA picture would show you literally a black hole because there's just like nothing there, right? No connection. They, uh, you don't travel between towns. The way they control is uh, exceptional how that regime had made that happen. First of all, education is gone, right? They don't learn anything but the great leader stuff because you can't really teach, I mean, philosophy. There's no way you can teach philosophy. Uh, it's history. <laughs> Um, computer, obviously. Literature, the only books they said they'd heard, other than the great leader books, Western books have, they know is the, uh, the Gone with the Wind, Disappeared with the Wind, because it's about North and South Civil War, <laughs> where North wins. You know, it's so tightly controlled. <laughs> um, I, it's, there's no accident. So what that means is, it's so tightly controlled. Education is, is, is you know, taken away from you, so you can't really think for yourself. And also a physical c communication, because you can't travel between towns without a travel pass. So they don't really, there's no movement between towns. So when you interview defectors, it's often they don't have information about the other part of it, because they can only live in their, their town. I think they can't leave. And then also, if you limit, control things like, uh, 
internet, phones tapped, let's say. Letters don't really travel because it doesn't really quite work. So you took, take away physical communication method, and then you control them through this cult ideology of the great leader. So you're controlling them sort of through soul. So then basically you have nothing. So what you're seeing, and then you have the world's most brutal and heavily militarized nation. You know, all North Korean young men between the ages of 17 and 27 have a mandatory uh, the army service for 10 years, during which time you don't really come home. Maybe twice, three times maximum. The country size of Pennsylvania. I mean, that's how small the country is. So you cut people away from their families, another thing that you do. So, I mean, it's so heavily controlled. So what would happen? I mean, it's exactly, I think, why North Korea is the way it is, and also why it's not breaking. Because if you were to, I feel like a lot of foreign policy level, why it's there is because China doesn't want those people psychologically damaged, really, three generations of this. And I mean, it's, that's all it is, it's abuse. It's, it's, a, it's a psychological abuse, physical abuse. So then China doesn't want them. South Korea, you know, it's like nation of Samsung. <laughs> South Korea, one of the richest countries, doesn't want that to deal with it. Japan, Russia, I mean, who are the neighbors? Refugee crisis, I mean, covering the campaign, I mean, they constantly talk about basically cutting, you know, blocking the border, US, <laughs> and, and, you know, immigration, against immigration. I mean, those countries really don't want the North Korean refugees coming across. What are the prospects for these young men, these, these sons of leaders? How do they learn leadership skills if critical thinking isn't uh, part well, of it? Because leadership isn't, there is no leadership. You know, it's just the, there's the great leader and all this military henchmen. That's what that world is. So they don't choose, they don't choose anything. They get assigned jobs that they go do. And from, um, they told me how that happens is basically they get their family background. You know, although they talk about their, the class system is very distinct in North Korea. So if your blood relates to somehow, so Kim Jong-un level blood, then obviously you're gonna be top. But if your blood, let's say, goes to South Korea linked, then you know, you're not gonna be anywhere near Pyongyang, which is a city for selected. So the, their background and their grades and um, what your peers say about you. So those meetings, the daily unity meetings were very important. So then the school just assigns them. So it's not, I mean, the country assigns them their job. So for example, our minder was uh, one of them. There were several. Minder means somebody who's like watching you and take you on an outing to great leader trips and stuff like that. Was an English, his English was immaculate. And he was an English major from Kim, Jong, Kim Il-sung University, would be like Harvard of North Korea. And, and he was like 26, and I thought, you know, is this the most the job you really want to give your best, <laughs> your best youth? Was basically taking me on a grocery outing and like watching what I write on, you know, just like nosing into what I do. Um, but that's that's basically I thought that's probably what's going to happen to my students. I mean, there is a question: Why were they learning English to this degree? Clearly, they're not going to be left out of led out of the country. So there is a question, you know, were they supposed to grow into doing mild hacking at some point? I mean, why did they need to learn English to this level? They have no choice. How did you end up coming to your time there, coming to an end, and then leaving? Kim Jong-il died. Um, amazingly, it was actually, I was due to leave, really. But then his death was announced. Um, 
I mean, it was really kind of shocking because it was Christmas time, actually. You know, he died on December 17th, announced the world the 19th. So we'd been having lots of uh, this, you know, Christmas Bible meetings. The, the event, you know, there were, the country knew, the regime knew that there were evangelicals. But, you know, Christianity actually uh, is an execution, like proselytizing is an executionable crime in North Korea. But this group was let in because obviously they gave all this money. Um, but they were supposed to pretend not to be Christians, right? So they, one of the rules was we pray with your eyes open. And um, so, but then the regime allowed them to have this little secret Bible room where they can do it only within the, uh, the dormitory. Because students were in the next dormitory, so they didn't even know anything about it. So they had to always pretend not to be Christian and just do it in secret. So because in the seat there have been a lot of secret Bible studies, I thought, you know, when they told me that he, when I was told by one of them, he's dead, you have to come to a special meeting, I really thought he, she meant Jesus, like God, or, you know, I was at Christmas, Jesus is born, you know, because actually I am not a, I, I am not a, a Christian, I mean, I'm not of any faith, but I grew up not with any religion, so I, it, you know, I, it was like, but, you know, it is true, I mean, it's a God in that world is Kim Jong-il, so when he died, I left the next day, and the whole country stopped. I never got to say goodbye to my students. What I did wit but I did witness. The world saw all these exaggerated tears, right, and the, the way the world saw that. But what I saw was, was a sorrow far deeper, in a way. And I spent all these months with them. So I knew they were heartbroken. But I mean, think about it. You know, People do always ask me, so is that real, their tears? You know. It is, I mean, it's their world. It's their God. Great leader is a God-like figure and father-like figure. And son, they say they of sons. Even if you hate him, let's say, secretly, it's it, your world that you've ever known has just shattered. So they were in just gigantic, traumatic, uh, you know, heartbreak. That's what I saw. So, I mean, I do think that, you know, even if you hate your father, you're going to be sad <laughs> when he dies. So it was just a humane moment of their sorrow. And then I, I left. And I didn't even get to say goodbye to them or anything, because everything ended then. Do you wish you had been able to say goodbye? Um, I wish I'd been able to explain to the disappointed students that uh, why I had to basically ditch them at the last moment with the whole Harry Potter thing. I think more, uh, I mean, just because there's no coming. Normally, we can explain later in an email. <laughs> You know, this is one world where I, I knew I was never going to see them again. I think the only thing I really do wish was, I mean, I knew when I heard, I couldn't believe Kim Jong-il died. You know, I remember that day so vividly. And I was leaving the next day. I didn't see them. I just saw them from a distance. They just didn't see me. I mean, it's like everything closed down. Their eyes just looked and just, it was like lost focus. And I... I just kept wishing, please, please. And genuinely, I remember, like, start, like let this world change, because Kim Jong-il is now dead. So his son, now the youngest leader in the world, is going to rise to power. I mean, I knew intellectually, having followed this for so long, that things going to change. But I prayed. <laughs> Me, not Christian, but I prayed. I prayed thinking, please let this world improve. It didn't. Suki Kim. Suki Kim speaking at Seattle University's Search for Meaning Book Festival. She's the author of Without You, There Is No Us, her memoir about her undercover experience teaching English. 
to the sons of North Korea's elite. This has been Conversations. I'm Enrique Serna. We'll talk more next time.